1: Hello and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood and today I'm delighted that Comfort Eero, Crisis Group's interim Vice President, is joining again as co-host. Hi Richard, I'm really glad to be back. Today we're going to talk about Myanmar.
2: Without warning, in the middle of the night. Myanmar's military made its move.
1: The general who led the coup in Myanmar criticized foreign interference today. Mandalay, as unrest over the military coup continues to flare. At
3: least eight protesters have been killed. It's been more than six months since the military seized power. That sparked mass protests across the country. The regime cracked down brutally. Since then, strikes and violence have paralyzed the country and the economy. Already months ago, Crisis Group warned that Myanmar was edging toward state collapse. Violence against those exercising their human rights and fundamental freedoms is unacceptable. It is time for the military to immediately relinquish power, refrain from further violence, release all those unjustly detained and restore Myanmar's democratically elected government. And it is time to provide unhindered humanitarian access so that life-saving humanitarian assistance reaches all the people in need.
1: We're going to talk to Richard Horsey, Crisis Group's Myanmar expert, about what's happening in the country half a year on from the coup. In particular, we're going to talk about a worrying new phenomenon. In parts of the country, new militias have formed to counter the regime. The military's retaliation has been heavy-handed and indiscriminate, displacing tens of thousands of men, women and children. Richard, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast again.
2: Thanks, it's good to be back.
1: So, Richard, maybe we could just start by you talking through a little bit about these sort of militias. How have they come about? What do they look like? What are they doing?
2: Sure. Well, of course, Myanmar is no stranger to armed conflict. And there have been uh, armed conflicts raging in the country for decades. What we're now seeing since the coup is not only the continuation of some of those pre-existing conflicts. Some of them have got worse, some of them have stayed the same, but we've also seen new elements emerging. So after the coup, many, many communities around the country were protesting. Uh, They were rejecting the military takeover. Uh, And after a period where those demonstrations were allowed to happen for a few weeks, uh, the military, as you said, began cracking down very violently, shooting demonstrators, attacking communities. And so in many parts of the country, communities began to organise defense forces, young men uh, who could protect communities. And in some areas, these have turned into kind of uh, militia organizations who are there to protect communities, who are supported by communities, and who are taking the fight to the Myanmar military. These are groups that are often very lightly armed. You know, these are these are communities that have maybe a tradition of hunting, where many men have these old flintlock rifles. But they've been inflicting quite significant casualties on the military because these are people who know how to use these weapons. They're they're hunters. They know the local terrain in a way that that, that the military uh, doesn't. And the military has responded as it often has before with really overwhelming force, not only against these armed men but also against the civilian communities that they come from.
1: A couple of weeks ago, we published a report that you were the the author of looking at some of these militias. And it's striking that they've formed in really quite diverse parts of the country, in one corner by Thailand and then in Chin State, which is a a state up in the northwest by India. And you recount uh, what happens in a town called Mindat in Chin State, where one of these militias has sort of almost taken over the town, ambushed military convoys. Do you want to to give a sense of sort of the the nature of this group up in Mindad and and what it's been doing?
2: Sure. So, you know, while these demonstrations were were raging all around the country in response to the coup, they were also happening uh, in this quite remote area of of Myanmar in, in Chin State on the Indian border. And at the local level, the community reached what it thought was, a, was an agreement with the security forces who were posted there that demonstrations would be allowed to continue as long as they were peaceful. But after some local, uh, local demonstrators were arrested uh, and then there were some shots fired, the community became outraged. At what they felt was this, this violation by the security forces of this agreement that they had. The peaceful protesters were being targeted for arrest uh, and shooting. And so they began organizing to resist uh, the military and to protect their community from further arrests and further, further killings. They took over basically the town and the local military battalion that was posted in the town was completely overwhelmed. This is a town of maybe 12,000 uh, inhabitants, not a big place but a very strategically located place and somewhere that the the Myanmar military could not accept would fall into the hands of the resistance. And so uh, they sent many convoys uh, of troops into this town to try and take it back. But the villagers were very well organized. They had scouts, they had informants, uh, and they ambushed each convoy that came. This is sometimes a 20 truck convoy with hundreds of troops, heavy weapons. They ambushed them on these remote mountainous roads and stopped the convoys from getting through. They killed a lot of uh, troops. They looted a lot of weapons. And the, the Myanmar military found that it could not take this town by road. And so they had to launch an, an airborne assault. They flew hundreds of troops in by helicopter. They, they used helicopter gunships to 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 shoot into the town uh, to allow them to land. Uh, and they fired heavy artillery into the town from far away uh, to sort of soften up uh, the resistance. So it was really a, a quite a major assault.
3: Um, Richard, can I follow up with a question about that? I mean, it's curious, sort of trying to understand why this area, you know, why has armed resistance taken hold in this particular area versus other particular areas? I mean, one of the things that you emphasised in the report um, is that this armed resistance in the northwestern part of Myanmar represents a new phenomena. And I'd like to understand why here, why not other areas?
2: Thanks, Comfort. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth emphasizing that the sentiment behind these resistance groups is felt across the country, whether it's in the main cities of Yangon or Mandalay, whether it's in remote areas, a huge cross section of the population uh, is outraged at the coup. Uh, and it's even more outraged at the shooting of peaceful protesters, of, of teenagers on the street, of attacks on communities. So the, the anger is there everywhere. Uh, it's just that in certain areas that anger has translated into the formation of uh, well-coordinated local resistance forces of different kinds. In other areas, that's been more difficult. One of the things about Chin State uh, on, on the west and Kiyar State on the Thai border is that these are ethnic minority areas who have all of the same grievances as other areas who have established ethnic armed groups. They haven't had insurgencies in these areas for many years, but the same sense of marginalization, of discrimination has been there. And so it's, it's not only tapping into the immediate anger after the coup, it's tapping into a much deeper uh, set of concerns, much more long standing. And these are areas where you have traditional hunters and others, so they have access to firearms, so they have the means to resist as well. That's not the case in, in all areas um, where, where guns are not necessarily easily available. Um, And they have terrain on their side. They have mountainous terrain. It's advantageous for for guerrilla actions uh, as opposed to lowland areas of the country where the military has been much more effective at going in and cracking down on resistance groups and so on. What this means, interestingly, is it's not just these these ethnic areas uh, in the report where there's resistance, but it's a different kind of resistance in different places. In these areas, it looks more like a traditional insurgency In places like Yangon and Mandalay, it's underground cells of operatives who are fighting asymmetric uh, warfare. It's people who are doing uh, IED explosions, targeted assassinations, other forms of asymmetric uh, warfare. And that's also very significant.
3: Just to understand the implications, what are the implications in the long term? What does this mean? going forward in terms of rolling back violence and resistance in in the country?
2: So I would say two things. The first is that these groups, like those resistance forces in in Chin State and and Kiyar State, those groups uh, have shown a a great deal of tenacity. They have enormous community support. I don't think they're going to disappear anytime soon. There's a good chance that uh, these groups will kind of evolve into Uh, more durable uh, ethnic armed organizations of the kind that we've seen in Myanmar for for many years in in other parts of the country. Um, And, you know, that has an implication that communities in other areas are all too familiar with, which is that the Myanmar military's counterinsurgency approach is an extremely brutal one that targets civilians. It doesn't just target fighters, it targets civilians. And knowing that a civilian support base is essential for any insurgency, and so that means uh, significant humanitarian impact. It means that the military is not just failing to distinguish or accepting a certain amount of collateral damage among civilians. It means it is by policy targeting civilian populations. The second thing is that in areas in the center of the country and in the, the cities like Gangon like and Mandalay, these underground forces uh, are are waging uh, this kind of asymmetric conflict. These are groups of of, uh, of young men and young women, uh, often protesters who've seen their friends uh, shot and killed in front of them, who are determined to fight back to resist. They are deciding on their own targets. They are deciding on on who is is, a, is, is fair game, who should be attacked, who should pay the price. And that means that uh, it isn't just the security forces that are being targeted. It's also uh, local government officials who are seen as on the side of the regime. It's also perceived informants or alleged informants in communities, and that gets very problematic when you know someone can be ass- accused of being a government informant for almost any reason at all, and and then you know be, be be susceptible to an assassination. What this has meant is that those people who feel they may be targets members of the, of the former uh, military-aligned political party, regime-appointed local officials, retired military officers, they feel under threat and they feel that the state and the security forces can't guarantee their protection. And so they are also forming their own groups, counter-revolutionary groups. They are also arming up. They are seeking to attack and kill the people they fear might be coming for them. And the state is not able to have any, uh, any, any, any control or, or impose any law and order and so it, there's really two sides in this battle in the center of the country and and you know i do really worry that this these dynamics could spin out of control and we could see a lot of tit for tat killings and a very violent development those dynamics are not as prominent in ethnic areas because communities are less divided whereas many bamar communities in the center of the country are really split and you know the, the possibility for increased community violence is is really very significant,
1: I think. So Richard, could we talk a little bit about the relationship among the different groups sort of in opposition to the regime? You've got these new militias that you talked about. You've got the underground cells in other areas of the country. And then you've got this sort of national unity government in exile or underground, which was established by parliamentarians that were ousted by the military. And you've got the ethnic armed groups, long-standing, some huge groups operating in, or in some cases, close to areas where the militias have formed, could you talk a little bit about the relationship between these new militias that you talked about, between the underground cells, and both the unity government and the ethnic armed groups?
2: Absolutely. So the national unity government has an enormous amount of popular support. Uh, At the moment, it it is the the peak body uh, responding to the coup and resisting uh, the regime. And so huge cross-section of the population of Myanmar, they are supportive of the NUG and most of the population is is not supportive of the regime. However, this national unity government is not in control of all of those different groups. The ethnic armed organizations have been around a lot longer than the national unity government. They're not about to put themselves under its authority. So the initial hopes I think that the NUG had that they could organize a kind of coalition of ethnic armed groups and and resistance forces and and demonstrators and fight back against the military, that hasn't uh, come to pass. Many of those ethnic armed groups are very sympathetic uh, to the aims of the NUG. They've denounced the coup. They've they've rhetorically supported the NUG, but a military alliance is a step too far. The underground cells and the new militias, uh, some of them express their allegiance or support uh, to the NUG, but they are not under its command and control. Uh, and so, and some of them, uh, many of them, in fact, don't have regular communications with with the NUG. Some do, but but many don't. And so this is a real uh, kind of diversity of actors and it's very localized. It's very community-based, locally organized resistance uh, rather than being something that is directed from the top. That also means that if dynamics start to spin out of control, there's no one really who can rein it back in. Um, We saw this with bombings at schools. Now, there isn't 100% certainty for each of those bombings who did it, but it is clear that some resistance forces have been involved in many of those explosions in support of a boycott of the education system uh, after the coup. Now, the national unity government put out a statement, you know, saying that they don't support attacks on schools. This is clearly something that's very, very sensitive. It could give a very bad name to the resistance in Myanmar, but how to contain it? There's no command and control. Uh, these groups are deciding more or less uh, for themselves. So it's very difficult to, to, to rein these in. And you know, thinking about where this goes in the future and coming back to, to Comfort's question earlier, you know, once you unleash these violent forces, once you have people who know how to make improvised explosive devices, people who know how to carry out assassinations, people who are armed, it's very hard to uh, to direct and constrain these forces once they're unleashed.
1: And I take it from what you said that you don't see it likely that the national unity government is able to sort of bring the militias, the underground cells, let alone the, the ethnic armed groups under a sort of broader insurgent front.
2: I think it's likely that they could uh, maintain their position as the kind of accepted alternative to the regime, but I think it's very unlikely that they would get practical command and control over these groups.
3: Richard, just understanding a little bit more about sort of the military's response, we've watched the unbridled use of force by the military, And one of the things that I'd sort of like to understand more is the military tactics and the so-called four cuts approach um, that the military has used, not just now, but in other successive approaches that it's taken. What, what exactly is the four cuts? Can that tactic work this time around, given the mushrooming of this new insurrection that you're talking about?
2: you know, the Myanmar military has been has been fighting insurgencies uh, since independence in, in 1948. So I think there hasn't been a single year where it hasn't been fighting uh, and it's, you know, a set of insurgencies since then. So it's very good at it. It's very practiced at it. It has developed since the 1960s, a counterinsurgency doctrine, which is pretty simple and pretty brutal. And it's rolled this out repeatedly. And it is uh, to cut off the four key support lines that insurgent forces need in order to uh, be able to operate. Those are food, funding, intelligence, and recruits. And it, it believes that if it can cut those off, uh, then uh, insurgency will be uh, much, uh, much more difficult to take hold. Now I say uh, it's, it's, it's become very good at this. It's become very practiced at rolling out the brutality, but there is no hearts and minds element here at all So the Myanmar military has been very ineffective at defeating insurgencies, but it's been uh, very effective at rolling out the same very brutal approach to managing them. And so that's what we're seeing uh, the military rolling out here against these militias in, in different areas of the country. They're going in hard. They're going in hard against the civilian population as well. And that's why the humanitarian implications of this recent fighting have been so significant. Perhaps as many as 200,000 uh, villagers uh, displaced as a result of of those of the fighting in, in those areas, um, and the military restricting the supply of relief goods, which they believed would would help the insurgents if those relief goods would get through. So very serious humanitarian situation. It's slightly different in urban centres because uh, you know this is this is this is something that the military has much less experience in fighting urban guerrilla wars. Uh, and this is something that is very difficult, anyway, uh, f- for militaries to do, even if they don't particularly care about the welfare of of the of the civilian population. So I do think uh, there the military is is facing a different kind of challenge. Um, but just as it's been fighting insurgencies, it's been it's been facing a hostile population for large periods of its existence throughout the 1960s and 70s and 80s and 90s. The, the different governments and, and regimes uh, in, in Myanmar were not popularly supported. They acted as kind of occupying forces, and that is uh, the the mode in which the, the military is running the country now. Again, so it's widely hated, but it's willing uh, to be to, to be very violent uh, to, to secure its rule. Uh, and it is rolling out in the urban centres campaigns of arrest, of torture, of, of, of brutality to kind of suppress dissent.
1: And Richard, we've talked a little bit about the, the sort of big ethnic armed groups in parts of the country, but beyond sort of their relationship to the militias, how have they been positioning themselves in this really escalating post-coup crisis uh, across the country? Have they been positioning themselves with the regime, which comprises military leaders with whom they've been fighting for many, many years?
2: So there are some 20 ethnic armed groups uh, active in Myanmar and dozens of military aligned militias that have been set up or or, or funded or uh, allowed by the military in in different parts of the country. So it is a very complex conflict landscape even before the coup. Now, these different groups have different ideologies, different histories, uh, overlapping but not identical objectives. And so each of these groups has uh, reacted differently to the coup. They've all looked at it as, uh, you know, the latest in a series of convulsions to strike the political center of Myanmar. They've seen this before. They've seen different regimes and governments come and go. And they're looking at how they can best navigate this situation uh, to their tactical advantage. Now, for some of those, that means going on the offensive. They see that the regime is distracted elsewhere. They see that it's repositioning some of its forces to deal with these new militias or to deal with the with the resistance that's coming up in the cities and they they see a tactical advantage to go on the offensive and retake territory that they've lost in previous years they also see that there's uh, there's an opportunity there to respond to the public opinion of their own communities because many of these ethnic communities you know have faced repression from the regime when they've demonstrated Either in their own areas, or when you know ethnic populations have, have demonstrated as part of the bigger demonstrations in Yangon or Mandalay or elsewhere, and so there's an anger among these communities, and, and they want their armed group to respond to fight back when they see uh, their youth being shot in the streets. They want their armed group to be to, to to be to be shooting back at the military. Other armed groups have stayed completely aloof. Uh, they've neither condemned the coup nor got involved in, in any way, really. Uh, these, particularly the groups along the Chinese border, that uh, uh, have long-standing ceasefires. They have semi-autonomous control of their own areas, uh, and they listen very much to what Beijing wants as well. They're not proxies of Beijing, but they certainly have political allegiances across the border in China. Those groups have tended to to, to, to stay quiet and stay aloof. And Then you have groups like the Arakan Army who see an advantage to keeping the peace, or uh, or even reaching new ceasefire or truce deals with the military you know for the Arakan army they see that uh, after a couple of years of very intense fighting there's an advantage for them to have a pause to regroup rearm uh give their communities some respite from the ravages of war and really sink their uh, administrative roots down in the areas that they've taken control of so uh, they see an advantage in in not resisting uh, the regime but actually using the space they now have to to further their own objectives. So it's a very mixed picture.
3: Richard, I mean, you you talk about how none of this is unprecedented, but yet the human cost really does remain pretty grim. What is the latest picture now in the country in terms of the human cost of this round of fighting? And what does it mean for a country that, despite the level of resistance, is still suffering and is still facing sort of deep violence as you're describing?
2: You know, it's very hard not to be pessimistic. There's there's no way to paint this any other way than than very serious or very bleak. You know, what I think we should take encouragement from is the, the you know, the, the huge commitment that the people of Myanmar have shown to pushing back against this regime. I mean, there is an enormous outpouring, not only of anger, but of creativity and determination. Uh, and this is changing the, the politics of Myanmar, I think. This uh, coup and the violence... Create greater linkages between different ethnic communities. We've seen uh, we've seen the youth really take take control of the of the of the trajectory and the dynamic. You know, this is a gerontocratic. A political system, uh, not only on the military side, also on the civilian side. It was, you know, a country that's ruled by people in their 70s and 80s with, with, with the youth really marginalized, their voices marginalized. And we've seen that in this period, it's the youth who've come to the fore with the ideas, with the voice, with new thinking. And I think that's, that's very refreshing. And it's very hopeful uh, for the future of Myanmar when it gets through this dark phase, that there is uh, really uh, a different path that's being charted by the next generation uh, than what we've seen in the past. But during this crisis, the the, the humanitarian uh, and social implications are enormous. COVID is currently spreading uh, very, very quickly in, in, in Myanmar. Uh, we don't have a very clear picture of, of the full extent of that transmission because of the collapse of the health system after the coup. Uh, and because uh, the regime is doing very, very very little testing as a result. Uh, But the tests that are being done show uh, spread of COVID, including the the gamma um, and delta variants across the country, Uh, all townships affected. And we're starting to see in the last few days desperate searches for for oxygen on Facebook, uh, which paints a very grim picture, the kind of things that we were seeing uh, in India uh, just a few months ago. That's one pressing issue at the moment, but there are many others you know, a collapsed health system uh, in, in a country with 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 a lot of communicable diseases, uh, malaria, HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, all uh, very serious uh, and, and obviously could get a lot worse. Childhood vaccinations all on hold uh, you know, in, a, in a place where those have been a real lifesaver for public health uh, over the last 10 to 20 years. So that's a huge worry. But beyond that, we just have the collapse of the economy. The economy of Myanmar has collapsed. The banking system has collapsed. Employment has collapsed, so this goes beyond a humanitarian crisis. We're talking about about the economic prospects of almost the entire country having been deeply damaged uh, by the coup, and that's not something that donors and aid agencies and so on can can really respond to. I mean, because of the nature of this crisis, uh, it's very unlikely uh, that the regime would accept, or that the international community would offer the kind of uh, uh, you know large-scale development support that the countries. Uh, can uh, often rely on uh, at times of, of economic crisis, because this is a, a man-made economic crisis, it's a crisis created by the coup. And, uh, you know, it's very unlikely that uh, the regime will be able to to secure, at least from international, uh, multinational sources, any support. And that means, you know, that, that they will fall back on what they do have, which is some friends in the region and beyond, um, uh, and uh, a lot of natural resources to be exploited. And we know that those things can sustain a regime uh, but they don't sustain a, a, a population. They don't sustain an economy. They don't put uh, food on people's tables. And so uh, that, that's that's how I see uh, the, the situation evolving there for, for for people.
1: Richard, given the the sort of downward spiral that you you describe, how do you see the sort of regime's calculations now? Commander in Chief, regime leader Ming online. What do you think his sort of cohort is thinking? What's what's their plan? Are they are they just sort of responding to events? I mean, do you see any prospects at all for a change of heart within the regime?
2: Yes, i mean the the regime is not taking my calls at the moment, so it's a little bit hard to to be sure about uh, about their thinking. but I think we can gather quite a lot from those people that they are talking to and and from what they are saying uh, publicly. I think the regime at this point um, feels determined uh, to press through uh, with with what it started. Uh, there are no signs that it's looking for off ramps. There are no signs that it's looking to get out of the mess that's, that it's created. Uh, every sign is that they are de- remain determined to impose their will on a country that that uh, just doesn't want to have. Uh, uh, them in power. I think also that sitting in Napidor, this very isolated capital that they that they do control, it gives them a very disconnected view uh, of of the country. They're not in touch with the realities on the ground. And I think they look out from Napidor and feel that that they are succeeding. Uh, now that's very hard for anyone else to imagine, uh, given you know the chaos and crisis that the country is going through. But I do detect signs that the military feel that, you know, they are slowly getting this situation under control. I think they're wrong about that calculation. I think that the future of Myanmar in the next months and and, and years is going to be very much tumultuous and and chaotic. Uh, But I don't see signs that the military feels that they failed and and have to find an exit. And and that's very worrying because where does that leave diplomacy? Where does that leave negotiation? Um, You know, the Myanmar people right now are not looking for dialogue and negotiation, let's be clear, they are saying very clearly they want the military not only out of politics, they want the military uh, ended as an institution, they want a new military under civilian control. So they're not looking to negotiate with this military, but it's very unlikely that the military can succeed in imposing their will as they seem to believe they can. It's also very unlikely, I think, that the opposition will be able to dislodge the military uh, that remains determined to hang on uh, at, at all costs. And so, Really, negotiation uh, is the only way out of this, but, but neither side seems, seems uh, interested in it.
3: Richard, you asked the question yourself, and I'm going to put it back to you. Where does this leave diplomacy and, and negotiations? But let me put the question in terms of the role of the international community. I mean, you said yourself in the briefing that we wrote that outside actors have a responsibility, including the UN Security Council, to ensure that the regime faces consequences, at least for the international law um, violations now, what does that actually look like in practical terms given um, the polarization um, within the council and given where China and Russia sit in relation um, to my- Myanmar versus um, western powers
2: so I think fundamentally there's a there's a lack of good ideas internationally about what to do about this situation I think not just the west but also uh, also China and the region look at what's happening in Myanmar, and and struggle to see, uh, you know, what they can do to to change the course of events. I think China, for example, would very much like to turn the clock back to the situation before the coup, where it had a good relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi, it had uh, an okay relationship with the military, uh, it had investments that it was pushing ahead, uh, and it would love to go back to that, but it doesn't really see a pathway back. And so I think China is increasingly realizing it's going to have to have to deal with this regime and, and they, are, they are starting to talk to them and, and, and recognize them uh, uh, in different ways as, as, as the de facto authority. You know, what this means is that this is not an issue on which actually the, the, the main players in the, in the council need to be diametrically opposed. Um, you know, everyone on the council more or less wants a stable Myanmar, Uh, This is not uh, a situation where, you know, different uh, neighboring or or, or other countries are arming different factions and and, and seeking to kind of uh, support those factions to seize state power. Uh, That's that's not not really what's going on here. So the council could be a venue for some constructive uh, diplomacy, exploring the overlap of interests between uh, the West and China and and, and even Russia to an extent. But it, it hasn't. I think partly because of the geopolitics and, and, and the state of the, of, of, of the council on other issues. I think that's blocked that. Um, but I think also because there it hasn't been a lot of creativity in thinking, you know, what can be done here? Uh, and there's a lack of a lack of good ideas. And so what what's the result? The result is that everybody, Russia, China, the council, the West uh, supports you know the ASEAN process as the diplomatic process uh, to, to, to address this crisis. Now, that's fine. Uh, but. It does betray a lack of priority and a lack of good ideas. ASEAN is never going to be the teeth of an international response. ASEAN has access to NAPIDOR. ASEAN has, uh, you know, uh, Myanmar as a, as a member, and so and so can can talk to the regime. But precisely because uh, uh, Myanmar is a member, and precisely because ASEAN works on a on a consensus based approach, it's never going to push. Napidor the regime in a direction it doesn't want to go it can be the channel for for conversations communication uh diplomacy uh, but but where's the where's the diplomacy to be the channel for i mean that that's severely lacking and in all honesty, I think in most capitals of the world, this issue is slipping further and further down the priority list and I think that's a real uh not only a pity but I think it's a miscalculation because I think this crisis can morph uh and, and likely will morph in ways that will have Wider impacts on the region and beyond.
1: Richard, could I end with one that's a sort of slightly wider angle question? I mean, you've been covering the country, living there for many years, obviously, close ties to, to, to its people. A decade ago, you were very, very quick to see that the political opening in, what, 2010, 2011, that for all its flaws was a genuine shift. Obviously, things over the next decade, you know, even before the coup, were in many ways troubled. You had this sort of uneasy relationship between the civilians and military, you had this very unpleasant form of Burmese nationalism gripping the country and playing into the Rohingya tragedy. But really, since February, things have headed down a, an extremely dark road. And, and we've argued, you've argued that state collapse is really on the cards, but it seems to be, you know, approaching quite, quite fast. Do, do you have any sort of wider reflections of what went wrong?
2: I think, you know, one real uh, issue here is that the military never gave up it's basic idea that it's had since the since the beginning, since the country's independence, and certainly since the the, the first coup in, in the nineteen fifties, that really this was a country where the military had to be in the leading role. The rest of the country has moved on. You know, there was uh, in, in nineteen fifty seven when the country was facing chaos, when uh, when you know the the government controlled. The, the then capital uh, Yangon and not much beside beyond that, there was a sense that maybe, you know, a period of, of military rule for a couple of years, a caretaker government to get the situation into shape, you know, while it was desirable in the 1950s. But the military never really wanted to step away from that role. The military felt that it had to be in charge, that the only way that Myanmar could be stable and, and not break up and, and, and be orderly was, was with a military uh, in, in the lead political role. And ironically, the military has been the institution that has created much of the instability and the centrifugal forces that the country faces. So far from being the protector of, of, of Myanmar's political integrity and, and, and territorial and sovereignty, uh, it's, it's been the, the, the dividing force, it's been the fracturing force but its internal view uh has never reflected that the rest of the country has moved on uh, especially in the last 10 years but also over the last 30 40 years you know the rest of the country has has moved far beyond this has different hopes and aspirations and desires for the future the military has never updated its mindset it still sees that this is a country that needs military rule and that kind of explains why the military was never really fully comfortable with this uh, cohabitation with its nemesis Ong San Suu Kyi, and why Commander-in-Chief Min Ong Lai was ready to take such a, a drastic and risky move to really destroy the economy of the country, to, to destroy everything that had, been, uh, that had been built up over the previous years for the sake of putting himself back in power. Why did the institution go along with that? Well, this wasn't just one guy wanting power. He certainly did. But there was an institution that had been conditioned to believe that Myanmar needed the military uh, in, in charge. And, and until that, that military mindset is changed, I, I'm afraid that there won't be any, any durable democratic uh, future.
1: Richard, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Thanks very much for having me. And, uh, and I hope that, uh, that at some point uh, on, on a future episode, I'll be able to, to, to paint a slightly brighter and happier picture.
3: Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Comfort Arrow, And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of Richard's work on Myanmar
1: and all of Crisis Group's work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group.
3: Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida
1: Holly Namby. And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review. Tell your friends about us. And we hope you'll join us again next week.
0: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.